This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, August 30th. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Kate Trinko. Today, we'll talk to Nick Loris of the Heritage Foundation about the fires raging in Brazil and whether we should be concerned. Plus, we'll play Daniel and Mai's conversation about two British churches that are taking an unusual approach to getting people in the pews. And a heads up, we're going to take Labor Day off, so our next new episode will be out on Wednesday morning. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. The Inspector General of the Justice Department issued a report on former FBI Director James Comey Thursday and his handling of private materials. The DOJ watchdog wrote in its report, quote, By not safeguarding sensitive information obtained during the course of his FBI employment and by using it to create public pressure for official action, Comey set a dangerous example for the over 35,000 current FBI employees and the many thousands more former FBI employees who similarly have access to or knowledge of non-public information, end quote. Comey's closest advisors informed the Office of Inspector General that they were surprised, stunned, shocked, and had disappointment by what Comey did. And they should be, writes Heritage Foundation's John Malcolm, head of our legal center in a Daily Signal op-ed. However, the Justice Department will not be prosecuting Comey. Comey has tweeted, meanwhile, that the report, quote, found no evidence that Comey or his attorneys released any of the classified information contained in any of the memos to members of the media, end quote. Comey went on to say, I don't need a public apology from those who defamed me, but a quick message with a sorry we lied about you would be nice. The EPA announced on Thursday that it would loosen restrictions on methane emissions that were put in place during the Obama presidency. Methane is considered a greenhouse gas that proponents of the rule say leads to climate change. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler said in a statement, quote, EPA's proposal delivers on President Trump's executive order and removes unnecessary and duplicative regulatory burdens from the oil and gas industry. The Trump administration recognizes that methane is valuable and the industry has an incentive to minimize leaks and maximize its use. Anne Isdall, the Acting Assistant Administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Air and Radiation, said, according to the Wall Street Journal, that there was a serious question about whether methane should have been regulated in the first place, and that the rule change doesn't prevent companies from limiting their own methane emissions. Isdall said, quote, Nothing stops companies from taking whatever voluntary measures they think is appropriate to deal with those concerns. Our job at the EPA is to regulate in a legally and scientifically responsible manner. Senate Republicans are asserting that the Supreme Court will remain composed of nine justices in a new letter to the Supreme Court. Quote, while we remain members of this body, the Democrats' threat to restructure the court is an empty one. We share Justice Ginsburg's view that nine seems to be a good number, and it will remain that way as long as we are here. Republicans wrote in the letter that was obtained by the Washington Post. The letter followed Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island, filing an amicus brief with four other Democratic senators that included this line, which some perceived as threatening, quote, the Supreme Court is not well and the people know it. Perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands it be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. 
Staff and faculty at the University of Kansas have called for a boycott of Chick-fil-A restaurants and demanded the school sever ties with the eatery, which has been moved to a prominent spot on campus. KU granted Chick-fil-A a bastion of bigotry, a prime retail location in the heart of our campus, said the University of Kansas Sexuality and Gender Diversity Faculty and Staff Council in a statement to the school's chancellor. The letter continued, quote, Moving Chick-fil-A to the union and granting it a role at the start of all home football games violates the feelings of safety and inclusion that so many of us have striven to create, foster, and protect on campus, and says a message that the union, KU Athletics, and the administration at large are more concerned about money and corporate sponsorship than the physical, emotional, and mental well-being of marginalized and LGBTQ people. Next up, we're going to talk to Nick Loris about the Amazon rainforest and whether you should be worried that it's the end of the world. Tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger government? Become a part of the Heritage Foundation. We're fighting the rising tide of homegrown socialism while developing conservative solutions that make families more free and more prosperous. Find out more at heritage.org. So we're joined now by Nick Loris. He's deputy director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And his work focuses on economic and environmental policy. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we've seen reports that the Amazon rainforest is experiencing the worst fires in a decade. And many are calling this a global crisis because the rainforest is, quote unquote, the lungs of the earth. So first of all, is that claim true? And if these rainforests all burn down, is everything going to hell in a handbasket? Not at all. Uh, In fact, many of what has been depicted as a crisis has been exaggerated or uh, dramatized or just flat out wrong. Uh, A lot of the pictures that were tweeted out were pictures from decades ago. Some were pictures of fires that happened in the United States. They weren't even uh, occurring in Brazil And so there's a lot of misinformation that's been spread about these Amazon wildfires. Even this year, while the number of fires is up 80% over the previous year, uh, it's really nothing all that new compared to last decade's average. It's about 7% higher than last decade's average. This is the normal time for these fires uh, in Brazil uh, because the area is used for uh, a lot of different agricultural activities, whether for ranchers and farmers or for growing soybeans. Uh, So there's a lot of economic activity. This is their dry season. This is when they have a lot of scheduled burns. Now, there have been some illegal activity um, and illegal burns um, through deforestation processes that shouldn't be happening, and, and that is problematic. But the crisis uh, is not what it is purported to be in the media. Okay. And what about this lungs of the earth claim? Like how essential is it for that we have enough oxygen in the climate? It's not. This lungs of the earth uh, moniker that the Amazon has received over the past several days and weeks uh, is just flat out wrong. Um, most biologists and environmentalists have said that we they don't really know where this phrase came from. Uh, it's Even the 20% number that says it produces 20% of uh, the world's oxygen uh, is not correct because there's a lot of uh, respiration that occurs in the Amazon rainforest that with the decay that comes from older trees decomposing and the wildlife, the the bugs and the beetles and the animals, 
uh, it's not just that they're producing oxygen, but they're producing that oxygen and taking in oxygen. And so even if we were to completely uh, eliminate the Amazon rainforest, which is not what I'm advocating for, that's certainly not what we should do, You know, there's still plenty of oxygen on the planet. Um, that's not a crisis, nor will it ever be a crisis uh, anytime soon. So you mentioned that you know the fires are a bit higher, but it sounds like it's pretty typical for there to be fires in the Amazon rainforest. What's sort of the historical perspective here? Can you put these this year's fires into context for us? Yeah, in regard to um, the, the past decade, they are marginally uh, higher, or there's more of them over the this year compared to last decade's average, seven uh, percent higher. So really, not all that much. Uh, it's been several decades now that. Brazil, the the people of Brazil, the indigenous people of Brazil, the Brazilian government have recognized that the Amazon forest should be uh, a resource for them. And they understand that a lot of economic activity can come through that area. And so decades ago, they built a road essentially through the Amazon, and that's created some more economic activity understanding that they want to protect a majority of the Amazon rainforest, but they can also use it for economic purposes, mostly agribusiness. And so over the years, you've seen more and more business popping up uh, you know, throughout and ad- adjacent to the Amazon rainforest because it, it is good land uh, in, in some instances for growing soybeans and for raising livestock. And over the years, they've had to clear brush and smaller trees and things of that nature. And to do that, uh, a lot of these burns are scheduled and controlled. Okay. So you mentioned the business interests. Um, Is there a way for Brazil to both be a good environmental steward of the Amazon rainforest and be a good place for business? Absolutely. And that's one of the concerning things that I've been reading about this is it's just kind of pitted the agribusiness of Brazil against uh, the environmental and the international community who want to see the Amazon preserved. And both of those things can happen. They're certainly not mutually exclusive. Part of the problem for Brazil, which is has a very robust agricultural business, I believe it provides about a quarter of their entire gross domestic product. So it's pretty substantial. Uh, part of the problem is that the regulations and the permits for uh, scheduled clears and scheduled burns have become more cumbersome and more time-consuming, and that's been problematic and and created the perverse incentive of having uh, more illegal burns and deforestation. And so uh, you can have scheduled burns and you can clear certain areas uh, for sure to allow for agricultural productivity while protecting a majority of the rainforests. And at the same time, you want to make sure that if you are um, protecting certain areas and you don't want them cleared for economic purposes, you are compensating the Brazilian farmers and the cattlemen and the ranchers and the indigenous populations who live there who are losing economic opportunity. You know, One of the things I equated to in the United States is the Endangered Species Act. And so if you own minerals underneath your property, if you come across a, a huge deposit of oil or natural gas, all of a sudden you're you're very wealthy and the value of your property increases significantly. If you have a endangered species on your property, say an endangered bird and you're a logger in Oregon or Washington, 
the value of your property and your business decreases significantly if that bird's habitat is on your property um, because you can no longer log. And so in that instance, what it does for the logger is creates the perverse incentive to chop down the trees, to destroy the habitat, and potentially lose economic opportunity uh, while also resulting in a worse-off environmental state uh, by destroying the endangered species habitat. Uh, and I think that's you know somewhat relevant to what's happening in Brazil, is that there's a perverse incentive right now for some of these farmers and cattlemen to have unscheduled illegal burns because of the rigorous regulations that have resulted in limiting their economic opportunity. Okay. CNN is reporting that Brazil, quote, has banned the use of fire to clear land throughout the country for 60 days in response to the massive increase in blazing fires in the Amazon rainforest that has caused international outrage, end quote. Is this the right call? An outright ban is usually not the best result. Uh, if you look at where the burns have been scheduled and are there are legalized permits, you know, that's areas where it should be allowed to continue. They should focus on the areas where illegal activity is going on. And if there is an international commitment to put out the fires in certain areas where that illegal activity is going on, that's where the concentration should be. And so Brazil already has laws against illegal deforestation and illegal burns. Those laws should be enforced and that's where the forest fires should be focused on where we put them out. Uh, but this is still a way of life for Brazil. This has been happening for a long, long time. It, it doesn't make sense to blame the, the current Brazilian government for something that's been going on for decades. And if this is their way of life, um, the international community shouldn't chastise them for something that they've done for a long time and largely has had successful results in making sure that their agricultural community is well off while the rest of the rainforest is protected, which is a significant amount. So speaking of the international community, a few days ago, French President Emmanuel Macron offered about $20 million in international aid from him and others to help Brazil fight these fires. Brazil turned it down, has accepted aid from other countries. There's a whole lot of drama I don't need to get into. But does the international community need to help here, and should Brazil be accepting any and all offers? Well, I think the Brazilian government and the Brazilian people were frustrated with this entire process. One, because of a lot of the misinformation that had been out there. Uh, but also because of the sovereignty of the rainforest, that this belongs to them. This doesn't belong to the world. And the international community and the government of France and elsewhere were treating it like uh, this was something that was new, that was existential, and that was a crisis. And, and that clearly was not the case. And so I think it's fine for them to accept money, to allocate that money to uh, farmers and cattlemen who may lose economic opportunity as a result of protecting the rainforest, as well as to put out the fires where they are occurring illegally. Uh, but at the same time, Brazil should have control of those resources. You know, this money shouldn't come with strings attached saying you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to receive these funds. Brazil knows best as to how to fight these fires. They have hundreds of volunteers who have known how to do this. Um, and to, to schedule and maintain these for years now. And so let's allocate the resources to them, but ensure that they have control as to how they're dispersed. 
So last week, MSNBC host Chris Hayes suggested that right-wing politics were behind the fires in the Amazon. Let's play that clip. And the important thing to understand, and the reason that we're showing you these images, the ones you're seeing on your screen, is that this is not just some natural thing that just happened. It is, in many ways, the product of politics, of right-wing politics, of a right-wing movement dedicated to climate denialism and climate destruction, just like the right-wing movement we have right here in the U.S. In Brazil, this guy, Donald Trump's buddy, Jair Bolsonaro, is the president. Okay, Nick, is there any truth that right-wing politics is to blame for this? No, again, if you look at the the trends and the data of forest fires in Brazil— Uh, And there's a lot of good statistical evidence as to these fires occurring for decades. You know, some of the highest years were under the uh, President Lula, who was the president of the Workers' Movement Party, uh, a far left party uh, in Brazil from 2003 to 2008, were some of the, the largest years of fires in Brazil. And that happened without the international community batting an eye. And so, again, I think people do need to understand that this is a a way of life in Brazil, that this has occurred for years, for decades. And understandably, one can be upset if these activities are occurring illegally and it's leading to both economic and environmental destruction. But rather than playing a blame game, we should be focused on productive policy solutions that adequately protect the rainforest while compensating the people who lose economic activity from not being able to grow soybeans or not being able to raise beef and livestock uh, in these areas. There's there's a solution for both that we should be working in harmony to, to find solutions rather than just pitting these communities against one another. Okay. Well, Nick Loris of the Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Descher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. So two churches in England are taking a rather unusual approach to how they are trying to get folks into their churches. Here's what one church is doing via NBC News. Nine-hole mini-golf course over famous bridges, encouraging children of all ages to play and possibly pray. The course constructed in the nave of Rochester's Cathedral, its spectacular setting dating back almost 1,000 years. The idea, a direct response to the UK's top cleric, the Archbishop of Canterbury's appeal for churchgoers to have more fun. But don't think it stops with a mini-golf course. At Norwich Cathedral, they installed temporarily a carnival ride called a Helter Skelter that basically boils down to being a ginormous slide, reportedly 55 feet. The BBC had a fascinating report about this, writing, quote, The Bishop of Lynn, the Right Reverend Jonathan Myrick, delivered his sermon from halfway up the ride. God is a tourist attraction, he told his congregation during the cathedral's final service with the Helter Skelter as a backdrop. End quote. The BBC also reported, quote, The bishop had climbed to the top of the helter-skelter before edging halfway down the slide where he stopped to deliver his sermon. 
He then received a loud cheer as he whooshed to the bottom. Enjoying ourselves is a good thing to do, and God will be reveling in it with us and all those people who have found fun and joy and laughter here, he said. So, Daniel, are you excited for your pastor to start delivering sermons from a slide? I'll tell you what. My pastor would, if you know my pastor, man, he he would, over his dead body, would do that. Uh, so here's I think the that thing. would be a very disrespectful funeral. <laughs> so here's the thing. Like, there's nothing wrong with a church having, like, fun events, maybe outside, maybe even inside, uh, as a kind of separate thing to, like— attract new people and, you know, entertain the kids and stuff. But my issue is that when it becomes like the main reason you're the the main attraction of the church and gets so integrated into what the church is and the way it thinks of itself, I think that's a real problem. I think you've actually changed the religion. Um, And that's, that's kind of the issue I have with the way this is being justified is some of these ministers quoted here are essentially wanting to get people with like amusement. And we have the same problem in America too. A lot of churches do similar things. I mean, I was telling you earlier before we started recording about some churches, pastors flying in on like a zip line and like kind of crazy antics like that to kind of keep people's attention. Like, I don't think that's helpful either. Um, The main issue is when you're thinking about outreach and trying to reach new people, what you win people with is what you will win them to. And so if you expect to get them with a carnival, good luck keeping them if you stop having a carnival because people are going to be attracted to that and not what you actually think you're selling. I mean, you can't really, if you mix, if you mix the carnival in with your message, then, you know, people may not like your message. They might just like your carnival. Yeah. I, um, I have a lot of thoughts about this and it actually just made me incredibly angry in the sense of, I was like, when they talk about civilizational decline, like this is example a, and I know I'm not the first or only one to have that harsh reaction to this, but at the heart of it, it's like if you take the Christian faith seriously, and I mean other faith traditions obviously have their own things, but like they're very rich. Like it's literally saying God became man and saved everyone and destined them if they choose to accept to eternal happiness. Like the fact that that is not compelling enough by yeah, itself, but a 55 foot slide is great is like. That's not a church problem. That's a people problem. Or maybe it is the church is not conveying the real thing. But it's like when they were saying in the NBC News report, like, oh, you need fun. It's like everything is fun in 2019. Everything, everything, everything. There are six million streaming cable. There's carnivals galore. Like it has never been easier to have fun. Like if you think you are going to get people with enticing them by fun, you are, I'm sorry, a moron. Like this is ridiculous. And I think that it also shows like, If a church cannot in and of itself understand what a sacred, wonderful thing it has, like that is such a deep decline in the church. I mean, again, like what I just I I cannot believe you would dilute the message like this. Yeah, it shows that the clergy is not even convinced of of the compelling thing that it has, which I think is what you're saying. And it it reminded me of this uh, famous C.S. Lewis quote. I don't have it in front of me, but he basically says the problem with man and God is that man is not that our appetites are too strong for God, but that they're actually too weak. And we just can't fathom how amazing God could be mm-hmm. in our lives. And we'd much rather. And then he says, like, it's like we're like kids playing with mud pies when we could be enjoying a holiday at the sea. And it's like it's just a completely different league. And we don't we don't 
have the ability to envision that. But it's the clergy's job to help us get there, you know, not to not to just totally cater to where we are. Um, and it, this gets also at a basic question of what the church is actually for. If it's out for its own, you know, longevity, for its own existence uh, in itself, then and it's just there to entertain people or keep people as members, then like I have trouble seeing what the purpose of this institution is. But if it, if the church is about proclaiming a message that it expects many people will reject because the nar- the path is narrow, uh, but that it also is the path to life, okay, that's something different. And that's something that people are going to be, uh, that at least some people are going to be drawn to. Yeah. And I think it also, it just... <sighs> You know, and I'm sure these are well-intentioned efforts to get people to go to church. I mean, as you said, I have no problem with if a church has outside the church carnival rides or, you know, like it's not like you have to start with like, oh, hey, here are the Ten Commandments, change your whole life. Um, But I don't know. I was also thinking I was recently reading um, a history of Americans in Paris by um, the, what's his name, the famous historian, David McCullough. And he was talking about Americans in the early 1800s who crossed over Um, the Atlantic and had these very perilous seasick journeys and it all sounded wretched. And one of the first things they would see in France, and I can't remember what city or what cathedral, but they would see one of these medieval Gothic cathedrals. And my understanding is both these churches in England are uh, supposed to be quite beautiful. I haven't been to them. And apparently like one of these famous Americans, and I just can't remember any of their names, but they wrote home and they were like, the horrible journey, like all the seasickness, all of this was worth it just to see this cathedral, just to see the stained glass, just to see the beauty here. And, you know, I realize they didn't have HBO in the 1800s. Things have changed. Expectations have changed. But I also I just feel like we have so little room in the modern life to appreciate true beauty, to appreciate sacred spaces. And it's just it's just gross. Yeah, I, mean, I think churches can use their own wisdom to determine how much, you know, quote unquote fun or attraction is like okay and how they integrate that into their church. But I just wish we would see more conviction on the part of particularly like pastors and clergy about how compelling their own message actually is. And I think we see that there's a real hunger and like we certainly discussed Representative Ocasio Cortez's like Green New Deal and the problems with it and, you know, the world is not going to end in twelve years. But I think we do see an energy among young adults on issues like climate change and, um, you know, even to a certain extent, LGBT issues because they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. There is a real hunger, even though I would argue it's misguided um, in these particular issues to like, you know, make the world a better place and have things be better. And I think that it's sort of like, like that's what churches should be trying to tap into, not people who just want to go to a carnival because a a real carnival will always be better than a church carnival. Oh yeah. I mean, Christianity offers a complete narrative about what this world is for and And, how, and how we can play a role in it and got the story that God is, is writing. I mean, that's, you know, pretty, should be pretty exciting and comprehensive. Right. And that you matter and that your life matters and that you have a role, you know, no matter how few Instagram likes you get or how small you feel among 7 billion people. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or rating on iTunes to give us feedback. We'll see you again Wednesday.
The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit dailysignal.com.